This is a Media Lab podcast. Whoa, 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 Dave, what are you standing on? What am I standing on? I, I know it's hard to see, but look, look really closely there at the ground. It's a very fine line. <laughs> I think that's good enough. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine. Cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen, this monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle and Dave, Dave versus, versus the machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. Uh, I'm Dave, unless uh, there's some controversy, in which case my name is Kyle um, Kyle Marshall. Yeah, and I'm the Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine forces us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. For whatever reason, this machine is really laser focused on having us watch movies from 1999. And today we are going to be watching the movie. Boys don't cry. What were you like before all this? Wow. So you're a boy. Now what? You want the truth, don't you? I wanna know. Like a long time ago. Got your mother in a world, cause she's not sure if you're a boy or a girl. Why don't you leave the lady alone? I don't want to trouble here. You gotta be kidding me. You can't just keep running forever. Nothing can go wrong if we're together. <laughs> what are you seeing in him? You wouldn't even believe it. So, Dave, um, I think before we do anything, because I do want to know what your history of the of this film is, I think we need to discuss the elephant in the room, which is that this movie is very much discussing and portraying the trans experience as it existed in the late 90s in America. Neither of us have any relationship with that. Neither of you, neither of us are trans. And to break the fourth wall, only in this section of the podcast, we did attempt to get a voice that could actually speak to that experience a little bit more. But due to scheduling conflicts and uh, and other things, we just were not able to get someone to be a guest at this time. Anything you want to add to that disclaimer? Oh, the invisible door was broken. Oh, sorry. The floating door. What are we calling it? Yes. The floating door is broken. Yeah, the guest door. The floating guest door. Our budding relationships with members of that community aside, we have absolutely no idea what we're talking about. So, uh, you know, mm-hmm. be, be as critical as you want, but just know we, we're dumb. We, we don't get it. Well, yeah, I mean, because if I do say something entirely ignorant or stupid, it is not with malice. So do let me know if I do say something that is totally out of bounds. But again, this is not my intention in this podcast. <laughs> is that enough little asterisks that we can put onto Fuck. this? I, Kyle, if you're going to leave them all in here, the the apologetic uh, tone is is actually pretty funny. Yeah. Now, if this was actually, um, you know, an article you were reading that sh- uh, showed proof of references, this would be like, 
you know, you just have like 10 different footnotes <laughs> at the bottom of the page in that really small writing. Kyle and so. Dave are dumb. Kyle and Dave are not trans. <laughs> Kyle and Dave have no idea. They absolve themselves from any responsibility of any statements. Right. <laughs> uh, let's move on. Uh, but that being said, I am actually really excited to talk about this movie, even though I am afraid I am going to say something ridiculously dumb. What is your history with this movie, Dave? I don't really have a strong one. Uh, I know that this put Swank out there with mm -hmm. uh, the pantheon of Hollywood powerhouses. And I mean, to be frank, I had no interest in watching it. 1999, uh, I was interested in watching movies like The Matrix and Fight Club. I mean, I didn't even watch Office Space in the theater. I had no idea what it was. Uh, and so when a movie comes out- Well, I mean, I just need to say, just because you brought up The Matrix, it's interesting how- the Wachowskis have come out and being very explicit of saying, hey, The Matrix was about our transition. Like that was before they even went through that. Mm. That was what the allegory was that they were working with, with The Matrix. So it's interesting that we're looking at like this high budget uh, made for the masses movie in The Matrix and this very small budget, as we will find out very soon and uh, made for kind of like the art house crowd in, in very different ways. Couldn't have brought that up in the Matrix episode, eh? Chicken shit. Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> yeah we should have done that. Um, I'm the same with you. So as you may or may not know, I was kind of obsessed with the Oscars telecast, specifically starting in the year that Titanic basically swept and like won 11 awards. I started watching in that year, whatever that year was. I think that was 98. I want to say it was 98, 97 or 98. And then I started watching every year and I've watched literally every year. I have watched the Oscars since the, the mid to late 90s. And uh, this is one of the years where Billy Crystal was hosting. And so this, that was kind of my first introduction to Boys Don't Cry. Did not hear about it, did not see it advertised. So my first introduction to it was Billy Crystal making jokes about Boys Don't Cry on stage at the Oscars, which I have gone back to watch, by the way, uh, and does not hold up those jokes very well. <laughs> but that's what was going on. And I kind of pieced together like what the story was. And I, I did actually want to watch it back then. But I mean, queer cinema was hard enough <laughs> anyways to get in the 90s, let alone in my small town's video store to try and go and rent this. Why didn't you just go to the theater in Rocky Mountain House? Oh, that's another thing. You might not have heard about this, Dave, but my theater actually burnt down oh, wow. when I was a small boy. Terrible. Tragedy. So this is going to be the first time I will be viewing the movie Boys Don't Cry. Let's hold hands. We'll see. I, we'll hold hands when I we watch I do it. know that it did have a pretty favorable reaction when it came out and in the intervening 20 years has kind of soured a lot with the LGBT community. So there has been a lot of pushback about that representation now, but all our changes, right? The way that we react to something when we're young is not necessarily the same way we react to that when we get older. So I think that is, you know, indicative of times changing and being like, now we can go back and look at, say, in the heat of the night and for race relations and be like, um, this is a little bit still problematic. You know what I mean? I mean, I, yeah, I, I want to comment, but I don't know the tone in which the community is reassessing this movie so mm -hmm. if the tone is that they think they could have made it better today that's frightening because uh it just i don't know it takes that out of context doesn't it kyle these things were important in the time i think that you are right in saying that it, it is important to take into account when things were made and how that influenced and changed what we're able to do now 
watershed moments in history as well as film and television, yes, you can go back and be like, hey, this wouldn't be cool to do exactly the same way now, but also it was made in the 70s or 80s or 90s. And I think some of that you can look past a little bit, but then there's things that just mean a lot to me. Like I just recently rewatched for no real reason the Bill and Ted movies. Oh, man. And I do not think, A, I don't think the first one holds up that much. But there is basically a recurring plot point in those first two movies that when they hug, they have to call each other a fag. Because, of course you do, because it was the 80s. And any type of man affection to another man had to mean that you were gay. So it's just like one of those things where like this absolutely would not be done in the same way today. And I'm glad it's not. Um, while simultaneously being like, well, I mean, there are some other things in that movie as far as jokes and stuff go that influence comedies for like the second half of the 90s. You have to kind of, yes, put it into context while still being able to be critical about uh, those things. Just, I mean, we're belaboring this, but Helen put in breakfast at Tiffany's. Right. And to be honest, as stupid as Mickey Rooney's in that movie, I was the least offended I've been in the opening sequence. I, I walked away. I don't want to watch the movie. I don't actually think the movie's very good in and of itself, but sure. um, yeah. I just thought to myself, kind of like we're talking about, I used to get, especially after that uh, Bruce Lee movie came out and Bruce Lee was so angry, you know, Jason Scott Lee got so angry and and that never really struck me because I don't watch Breakfast at Tiffany's every weekend. (laughs) But, uh, you know, yellow facing was a thing. And then, uh, I don't know, this time I looked at it and I was like, this is, what is that, 1963 or I I can't remember what year. Something in the 60s. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, if Mickey Rooney is going to be an asshole about it, you know, what, what am I supposed to do? There's a trope. He's playing into it. Uh, I just don't watch it. Now you're going to get all those Mickey Rooney stands that are on TikTok going to come at you en masse and cancel I would you. Love to, That's on you, Dave. I would love to see a poll of how many people right now even know who Mickey Rooney is. <laughs> I want to know how many people under the age of 20 know who Mickey Rooney 20 is. 20 nothing. I and think like under 40 I, I, even. Could. <laughs> probably. It would be me and like five other people. <laughs> Uh, All right. Well, Dave, let's do this. Let's go and watch the movie Boys Don't Cry. I'm going to thank some sponsors. And then when we come back, we'll be discussing this movie on eggshells. Deep breaths. Deep breaths. Hi, everyone. It's just Kyle here breaking into the episode to tell you about some of the people that make this show keep going. You know, the days are getting shorter. The weather is getting chillier. And Dave and I are getting more pretentious. You know, the Calgary International Film Festival is going on right now, which, by the way, they're not a sponsor, but they should be, but they're not a sponsor. They are allowing people here in Alberta and I think even Saskatchewan to buy these ticket bundles where you can actually watch many of the films at home and it's ridiculously cheap like less than ten dollars per film so i watched this documentary here last night called no ordinary man and it's about this often forgotten trans jazz artist from like the 30s 40s and 50s his name is billy tipton and they actually use Boys Don't Cry as kind of a framing device partway through the movie to just kind of tell people about what people's trans experiences were like at the time that his story was being told. Anyway, it gave a lot of good insights, and I think that if you are able to, you should check out that documentary because I think it adds to the conversation that Dave and I have about this film, which you're about to hear. But this is a good point to say that Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. 
The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation. Whether it's funding anti-racism programs, addiction recovery, or food hampers for the hungry, for 65 years, the Calgary Foundation has proudly supported the charitable community to address some of Calgary's biggest challenges. Now, during this period of unprecedented urgent needs, Calgary Foundation renewed its commitment to building a healthy, vibrant, giving, caring, and resilient community. If you're a registered charity looking for a grant, a professional advisor, creating a giving plan for your client, or a donor wanting to give back to community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about their work through Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is also brought to you by the inaugural Yeg Podfest. Yeg is spelled Y-E-G Podfest, presented by Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Alberta Podcast Network and LitFest, Canada's non-fiction festival. Running October 1st through 3rd, the festival will be held entirely online this year, so anyone can experience it. Events will include masterclasses with experts, panel discussions, feature interviews, and more. Some of APN's podcasters will be part of these events with guests from around the world. Perhaps you're going to be interested in this masterclass that, let me just uh, check my notes here. Let me just get some Foley, so let me just check my notes here. And yes, oh, I, I'm going to be helping out with a masterclass. It's called How to Sell a Podcast to Your Boss. It'll be me and APN's Karen Unland. We'll be talking a little bit about how you can pitch a podcast idea to your company and why we think it's a great idea to utilize podcasting in your business. All events are free to register with donations gratefully accepted. To check out the full lineup, you can head to yegpodfest.ca. All right, Dave, that was Boys Don't Cry. And now I'm even more terrified to talk about this movie because I have a lot of opinions. And to spoil this a lot, I did not enjoy this. I did not enjoy this experience. I was in an erect, I don't know if you noticed, but I was in an erect fetal position for easily set. I think you can think of a better adjective to use. <laughs> there has to be a better adjective that you can use. For the use. last uh, 75% of this movie. I think even at the beginning, yeah. I was already curling up into a ball, but Christ, yeah. when that ball started rolling down that hill, Kyle, I, uh, I couldn't even believe, yeah. uh, couldn't believe what we just watched together on this virtual couch. Well, let's do this. Why don't you give me your thoughts on this non-spoilery as possible? What are your, just your thoughts on the movie in general? It was, for me, I would use the word riveting. I mean, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. Soul crushing. And uh, when we finished it, I don't know if you remember, but I opened up my smartphone because I didn't even realize this was a true story. My, my non-branded smartphone, yeah. yeah. I had to Google it. Because as much as I understand maybe that this might have been true, like I Wikipedia and it's not just true. This really happened. It's yeah, I mean, gut wrenching. I think we should discuss a little bit about what they change in the story and how that slightly, I think, changes the message a bit. But yes, the conclusion to this movie, the climax of this movie is pretty spot on of like what happened. And that is terrifying in and of itself. And so when I said I don't didn't like this. Uh, I'm not really talking about the quality of the filmmaking. I think it's very accomplished, especially, again, when you know how much money they had to make this, which is not very much. But I did not enjoy the experience. This was harrowing. That's the best word that I can think of. 
like I was basically folding in on myself like a dying star as I was watching this movie because I was just like, I do not like this feeling that I have. There was awful things happening on screen. It reminds me of when I watched Rec Room for a Dream, which is like, hey, you know what? I can recognize the artistry that went into the making of this. I never want to see this ever again in my entire life. And that's the same way I feel about this movie. Schindler's List. Yep. It is very reminiscent also of something that is, uh, has become deeply important to the LGBT community, which is the Matthew Shepard story, right? Which is young man uh, beaten to death, chained to a fence. So these types of stories, especially in the early parts of like gay cinema, uh, as well as I think something that the community is really pushing to change, which is like not every story has to be a tragedy. Again, going back to the revisionist history, I get I know that we're kind of there in the earliest years of those types of film kind of breaking through not just art house cinema, but actually breaking out into the more of the mainstream. This was at the forefront of that. Boys Don't Cry is really at the forefront of that, um, but, the, and- but still really focusing on the tragedy of that lifestyle rather than being like, hey, it doesn't always have to end like this. Uh, but the the thing for me, just on that one point, because at your... Uh- suggestion a few weeks ago i watched what is it called straight up uh, which is different straight up. but yeah a great movie we yeah. we uh i love we that movie. And, and same type of thing yeah. yeah but i think that with all harbingers harb harbringers harbingers of change you need violence and tragedy others nobody gives a fuck and i think that if yeah. the problem is that we want to play and outside of let's say the LGBTQ message, I mean, in general, whether it's racism, sexism, any type of like fascism, it doesn't really matter. Whatever it is that you're upset against, if you can't paint it with a very violent, visceral, and gory brush, people are numb to it. I mean, even now, people are numb to that now too, which is really fucked up. But if that's what the message, like at the beginning of our talk, is that this shouldn't have been done in such a negative manner, then I disagree with that. As much as I'll never watch this movie again, how can mm-hmm. you get change if you don't show what really happened? People don't, like we talked about a few episodes, people don't watch documentaries, people don't give a shit about reality. We consume news, but doesn't change us. Somehow you watch a movie like this and you have to, you have to ask questions, even though it's essentially fictional. It's. I think what the argument would be, and I, I take your point because I do think, yes, to truly care about an issue, it does kind of have to be that visceral, like, this is why it matters. And by the way, look at the violence that these people perpetrated, and we're not going to shy away with it, and you don't get to look away from it. Right. This is what happened. And I think that there is a power to that. I think that also, with those stories, you could have, just to pick on them, because they're the biggest people in the land, if you look at the Marvel films, they... Are, are starting to try and include like LGBT characters in that, but on the periphery. Star Wars is the same way. Like here in North America, they had two women hug because they're in a relationship in the latest Star Oof. Wars movie, but so that they can cut it out when they release it in China. Con- you know what I mean? So yeah. it's like, it's like these sort of weird semi steps where it's like you can't have just like Han, Luke, Leia, and this person here who is not an entire divine, uh, defining trait is that they are gay or trans it's just like they are a character also in this universe doing stuff right it always has to be tied back to their sexuality is their most important characteristic and therefore that's the only thing we ever get to know about them incest is okay 
You can, Incest is okay, <laughs> but gay people. You can make out with your so sister, much. but you can't have two uh, two men <laughs> making out. Yeah. I mean, that's offensive and needs to be <laughs> NC seventeen. I get it. To be fair, all Wookies are bigots, and th- that is that is from Lucas himself. <laughs> Lucas said that. So I, in that world, the idea of a bigot is kind of funny. Well, we'll do that in our next podcast. Let's do some background information on Boys Don't Cry. Boys Don't Cry was released on October 22nd of 1999. I, I want to find out something else that came out on this exact same day, which was the horror film Bats. Do you remember the horror film Bats at all? No. The horror film Bats, uh, I have a wager, was only made because a graphic designer designed a really cool logo. <laughs> and that's the only reason that they made that movie. It was basically arachnophobia, but with bats. Arachnophobia. And basically, I remember the advertisements coming on TV and it would be these bats kind of flying in and forming the word bats as they kind of hung from the ceiling. Christopher Nolan. And he's like, oh, that's cool. Christopher Nolan. That's really cool. Great. That's the only reason why this movie was made so that someone could actually do that because it was called bats. Um, Currently, it is rated not bats, but boys don't cry is currently rated 7.5 on IMDb, 86 on Metacritic, 88% based on 78 critics. Uh, on Rotten Tomatoes and 69,989 users on Rotten Tomatoes give this an 87%. So fairly highly regarded. I think we should keep talking about bats. Available on DVD or Blu-ray, you can stream or rent it on iTunes. You can also rent it on Google Play or YouTube. And in Canada, you can stream it via the Stars app. Are we getting money for plugging Stars so much? God, we should because basically the last eight movies have been like on the Stars app. With a Z. I mean, we you can do better yeah, than that. I mean, what a great $6. A supreme value for the movie lover and your family. If you're into the year 1999. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the app for you. Its budget was $2 million. So super low budge. I think we think about $2 million being like, I would take $2 million. But for a movie, that's not a lot. It opened to $73,000. Domestically, it would make $11 million. There is no international release, so it ended with $11 million, which is $17.9 million with inflation. So this made money. This actually made money for the little studio. You know, what, you know who didn't make money? Hillary Swank. <laughs> Hillary Swank. Yeah, she got paid scale, I think, 3, for this movie. 3000 like, Yeah. But she got, she got an Oscar. So uh, She did get an yeah, Oscar for let's it. Let's move on. And then got to work with Clint Eastwood. So In another feel good... Kyle. Feel good movie of the Holy year. Shit. Its plot description is a young man named Brandon Tina navigates love, life, and being transgender in rural Nebraska. Is that really the synopsis? That is the plot description for this movie. Fuck. Yeah. I have a feeling that that was probably changed recently, that that is <laughs> how they, they frame that. Anyways, it stars Hilary Swank as Brandon Tina, Chloe Sevigny as L- Lana Tisdale, Peter Sarsgaard as John Lauder and Brendan Sexton III as Tom Nissen. Like a- uh, you write up, by the way, on, on Patreon, on our Patreon page, which you can go over and help support this show. Dave does a very nice write up each week that I also have to like give my little uh, editor's notes as I as I post them. But anything you want to bring out about any of these actors? Yeah, the, it's the most depressing thing I've written. The people are fascinating, but it is the A list of indie cringe movie actors. Hilary Swank is, of course, uh, a double Academy Award, but when you look at their body of work, it's harrowing 
the worst case mm-hmm. being that Hillary Swank was in P.S. I Love You. I mean, that's a horror film. It's frightening. <laughs> I always think, and maybe this is unfair, anytime I see Chloe Sevigny show up in a film, I'm like, oh, this film must have been made for less than $5 million. Yeah. Because that's usually the case when I when I see her show up in a film. Well, hers in particular, her write-up is uh, brutal because I think... That's not only a fair stereotype. I think it's an intentional one. She has a very strong mystique of self-destruction. There's something very brutal about how she chooses her roles, how she lives her life. She's a very, uh, even in the acting world, very eclectic, very very yeah. strange person. I remember in the 90s, I was fascinated by her per- persona, not as a fashionista, but just like you said, you see Chloe, uh, Chloe Sevigny, what is it, Sevigny? Sevigny, I, I think also thought she was Canadian, which she's not. And- um, you know, I didn't watch any of the movies, but you're like, this must be an indie right. flick because she's in it. And it turns out it's true. Yeah. She turned down. I mean, yeah. And Peter Sarsgaard is in so many he's always, like, small he's movies too. He's got such too. a cruel face. I mean, he's been in some big ones <laughs> and uh, he seems like a nice guy <laughs> look- in his press photos, but oh, okay. name a movie where he looks like a nice he's not person. Some type of simmering evil underneath. Or, yeah. yeah. This movie was written by Kimberly Pierce and Andy Beenan or Bynan. I don't know actually how to say the last name. Uh, more on Kimberly Pierce in just a second. But Andy co-wrote this movie and then 20 years later has a story by credit for the film called Yellow Rose. That is his entire resume. I couldn't even find that. So I didn't put anything in it. So you can, right. uh, you can uh, see if Kyle put it in at the time right. of releasing this episode. <laughs> uh, this, however, was directed by Kimberly Pierce. And this was her first feature that she would direct, but she would go on to direct Stop Loss, the remake of Carrie, a bunch of episodes of television. And then there is an upcoming film called This Is Jane that is apparently being made, whose plot description is dissatisfied with the state of health services available in the United States during the 1960s. An activist in Chicago forms a group that provides education and counseling for women seeking abortions. So... Another happy film. And that's, I don't mean to say that people shouldn't do this kind of work. It's necessary. No, it's, it's, it's necessary. But yeah, it's, 100%. You know what it is? I think that I, our current situation also impacts this because with COVID and we talked about this a few episodes ago where watching something that is completely depressing is just not the state of mind that I really want to be in right now. When I'm already in a state of depression, having something that's going to make me go further into that stage is just like, oh God, like I can't do this. I mean, I, maybe this is why documentaries are not, have no public mass appeal because we don't, especially in North America, I mean, I can't speak to Europe or Asia, but I, I mean, I don't, I think it might be human nature thing. Nobody wants to confront reality. <laughs> I mean, it's where psychology comes from, right? I mean, if you wanted to look at the world as facts, they would tell you you have a psychological, ironically, a psychological disease, sociopathy, uh, Asperger's, whatever mm-hmm. it is. If you're looking at it as pure datum, change, as we brought up, social change requires at least dipping your toe into the murky waters of the fact that we are not happy, people are not nice to mm-hmm. each other, and generally speaking, uh, the world has gone and lit itself on fire many, many times right. over the course of human history. How's that? That's the mindset I'm in with the write-up of okay. this movie. Yeah, I like it. I can't wait for your talking points memo. More than any other film, I really do think we need to break this down, how we would have interacted to this movie in 1999 versus how we're interacting with it now. Because I really do think that there is a difference, at least for me, 
to that question. So how would, what, you would have been 30, I guess, in 1999? Is that right? I think 42. I, I, yeah. uh, I was actually thinking about that in the few minutes after watching this movie together mm-hmm. on the virtual uh, right. machine. On our way back here to our recording setup. On yeah. our CRT TV that you uh, fused into the machine. I, um, I was ignorant and irreverent when I was young. I don't think I was, I'd like to believe I wasn't hateful and violent, but uh, I certainly wasn't socially conscious the way that is almost required these days, as you brought up. And I think that as I get older and as I meet more and more interesting people and try to ab- absorb some sense of humility, uh, I can have great relationships and conversations with anyone I meet. I don't think that was necessarily that much different in 99, but I certainly wasn't around a culture that would, for example, Laud, boys don't cry. I'm not hanging out with a bunch of folks who are like, you have to watch this statement about a grisly murder. And are we allowed mm-hmm. to spoil uh, this yeah, movie? Yeah, we're in spoilers now. Yeah, 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 like brutal rape and murder of a transitioning male, I suppose, uh, at the point. This one's a little confusing because the uh, operation is uh, out of reach. This is not dinner table conversation in most houses, uh, unless both your parents are fucking social economic professors or like something like that right this is uh or activists this is this is hard stuff i'm glad it exists i'm glad i've watched it but i ran away from this i ran away from broke back i ran away from all these things where i just couldn't see a personal relevance uh, while still being trying to while still trying to stay woke as they say these days on Mm -hmm. stuff that i cared about i didn't shy away from knowing gay people it's just i didn't have any around me. I just didn't want to see them in my movies. No, I just, uh, I, <laughs> no, it's okay to be in a movie. I just, they weren't in my social circle, right? I, I It's just the way I was living at the time. Well, I'll be super vulnerable here because I don't know if I would have fully even understood transness in 1999. Like, not really. Like, the there was just no representation of that, first of all, in the media that I was consuming on the three tv channels that i had growing up the other thing is that as far as like the closest things that we had was going to be drag queens and that was like again this is showing my age was dame edna if you remember who dame edna was and like rupaul was just starting to kind of break through into like the mainstream but those are like my only points i don't think and i guess i'd have to have a an actual time machine to travel back to see. I do not think that I would have even known that you could transition to a different gender. Yeah. Again, this is me being in a small town, 1999. I just don't know if I would have been conceptually been able to understand that. Definitely by the time I got to university, yes, like that was starting to become a bigger topic of conversation. Uh, there was more trans representation coming out at that time. I was reading up and and meeting people. But I, again, going back to 1999, when I was 16 years old in grade 11, I just don't think I would have understood it. And so I think if I had seen this movie in 1999, yes, it would have helped. But I, I think what I would have taken from it, that this is like a very hard lifestyle. That's and, not untrue. But, and, and, and a grisly ending the, to top it all off of. Uh, I'm just, you know, listen to, I just remembered, I mean, for example, it's not specific to uh, trans awareness, but, you know, blurs uh, boys and girls and uh, in Hong Kong there's uh, sort of this boy girl culture already coming out there's a lot of sort of zeitgeist already about Thailand and uh, right you know, yeah so 
I think I'm around it, like on the periphery in the sense that these are things that are poking into my world. Uh, and I don't think this is an urban, rural, farm, agricultural, cultural thing. I think that the 90s is- You, you are on record for hating small towns. This is, yeah, so. I hate small towns. And no, I, uh, I think this is a, a melting point in the 90s, uh, even outside of the LGBTQ, holy shit, I'm fumbling here. I mean, even race relations, multiculturalism, I, I think everything's starting to blur- into one thing. Um, and the 2000s would really get yeah. that going where everybody's suddenly realizing that we're not alone in the universe. The, the, the flip side of that comment being like, how would I have looked at this in 1999 versus now? What, what I was personally struck by was that as powerful as these acts of violence were to be put to film, like today, and, and maybe this is belaboring the point that we started off this podcast, but I just don't think that had this movie been made today in the year 2020, we're going to make this movie called Boys Don't Cry about this very singular experience of Brandon Tina, that they would cast a woman for that role. I, know. I just don't think they would. I, um, I'll only disagree because of the specific character. I think, mm -hmm. you know, if, if this is a, a fictional work about trans culture, then absolutely there'd be a huge controversy, as they say in England, about not using proper representation in a role. But mm. this is literally a movie about a woman that still has not been able to um, start her transition physically, even though psychologically and spiritually and emotionally, she desperately- And does realistically. Not, yeah. And d does not, I mean, I've seen some photos too, that just doesn't connect with being a woman, connects with being a man. And there's, uh, there's this gap there where I think that that part shouldn't even be controversial. I think it should be ambivalent. And if the best actor, or in this case, if it's going to be a Hollywood hit, the best big name celebrity that's going to play this role, whether they have themselves any relationship to transitioning uh, is less important. What makes this movie work, as I learn about the backstory, is that Hilary Swank goes out and lives this life method acting style for a year without tell or a month and without telling it was a month yeah yeah without telling anybody that she was actually doing it uh, losing weight doing all this stuff that I, I put in my notes like Christian Bale and Robert De Niro get way more credit sure for this kind of shit and while she got the Oscar and she is definitely lauded in Hollywood as being a great actress I and mean, she just really just does not get enough credit for how she landed and blew this role up at least in terms of the acting approach. But well, that, and, and that's the thing where I get a little bit conflicted by because I do think that she puts in like a phenomenal performance. She's incredible. I cannot in say that she doesn't do a great performance in this role. I, I will say that there is this a little element of privilege there. Yes, when I 100% went off, lived for a month, like living as a boy for uh, for a month. But again, knew she was coming back. Like she did not actually really have to fully live that experience. Of course. Right. Uh, but that's, yeah. So again, again, on one hand, great performance. On the other hand, it's like, I guess this goes back to like, would this movie have even been given $2 million had they cast someone who, who had transitioned, that there was a trans person put into that main role? I would guess probably not. In 1998 or 1999, when this was actually shot and filmed, my guess is probably no. What was it I was, I think I brought up, once something I watched or read about the timeline of generational change and how we have uh, an expectation that as soon as we notice something's wrong, that it should already be immediately fixed. When are you getting fixed? To your point, I think that if this project was pitched in 2020, 
they would have conversations like this, but we would not mm -hmm. yet be ready to just go full steam ahead with proper, let's literal represent. I mean, that's a dangerous thing because this is a true story anyways. And no matter what happens, someone's going to have a bone to pick because I mean, it's not just, I mean, it's not just a tragedy. I mean, this is violent by its nature, right? It's, it shows the depths of depravity and fear. But maybe in a hundred years, provided we're still here on the earth, although it seems like the apocalypse is upon us anyways, as the generational change happens that we can be above, where even in this, this is the first podcast where we've spent so much time apologizing for something we haven't even spoken about yet, right? You know, maybe at that point we'll be ready to have stories like this emerge in the public sphere. But then this is my problem with sort of gotcha culture. I think sometimes it misses the point, the broader point, which is that things are changing. They're just not changing quick enough for some people. And then there's this other thing I read where as change happening, the worst voices come out, right? Because you have fear as Black Lives Matter and, and uh, you know all of these rights groups are finally getting some traction. You're going to get the crazier fucking asshole standing outside with M16s because now they're actually going to lose something. So we're, we're in that tension zone right now where I don't know. I, these are kind well, of weird yeah. arguments, man. Like, I know. Um, and I, I think we do need to put into context that there was even a bit of a discussion at that time. I think what's so fascinating, going back to the Oscars again, I watched Hiller Swank's win and acceptance speech. And the announcer, when she wins the award, it, I forget how exactly he phrases it, but it's like, uh, Hillary Swank wins her award for playing the role of Brandon Tina, uh, a woman who pretends to be a man or something like that. He phrases it in such a weird yeah, I had way. had to put it in though, eh? That's yeah. Um, and then, but when she gets up there, she's like, he was, and she just keeps referring to him as him and he and like using the proper pronouns and stuff. So I think that that conversation, and it's it probably because I know that Kimberly Pierce, the director, is, uh, is a lesbian herself and has probably had uh, friends in that community. So it was probably understanding of how to properly communicate that and I, I would assume also probably because Hillary Swank spent that month probably started to fully understand like no 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 it's not us pretending to be something we are the this thing and so I'd probably internalize that language a lot quicker than people were so it's like there's already a fight there I think in that in I guess the year 2000 when the Oscars were with that kind of terminology well I, I mean I, I wonder if fight is a biased verb too. But yeah, yeah, certainly tension. And I think, or, you know, even ignorance. The one thing I will say about Hillary Swank, uh, having read the bio, I mean, uh, you know, I don't know Hillary. You know, we haven't met Oh, you yet. don't? Oh, interesting. The, that little snippet in her history that when, you know, when her, uh, you, when her parents get divorced, her mom supports her wanting to be actress. And so they move to LA and they live out of a car. Those kind of formative experiences where people actually struggle allow certain individuals to become people who can actually listen. And I, mm -hmm. there's a local artist here, um, Harvey Nickel. And when I found out right. he comes from the slums in the Philippines, comes to Canada, and, and he jokes about being homeless in Canada because it's a fucking cakewalk here compared to growing up right, in Manila, yeah. right? I mean, he's not that irreverent about it, but I, I think the, the whole kind of uh, concept uh, is fascinating to me that if you're saying, I didn't watch it, but if she went up and really stuck to her guns and said, like, look, he lived this way and, uh, you know, kind of having to force people to correct their perception of what this movie is, yeah. I, mean, I believe it because she sounds like somebody that comes from somewhere genuine. I think it's impossible to talk about this movie without really wrapping this up in, uh, let's call it toxic masculinity. That might be an overused term nowadays, but definitely weird gender terms the violence that is used in this movie, like it is basically there from frame one in this movie. Yeah. 
of like the violence and casual violence, even like the Peter Sarsgaard character with his friends is like punching and throwing fits and kicking them out of cars and stuff like that. And um, maybe this is why you don't like small towns that, uh, you know, we're all just a bunch of this stuff bravado hungry heathens. Well, here's the thing. This stuff happens in big cities too. And I, I think maybe the broader question might be, is this uh, a human psychology problem, which I think it is. Necessarily, humans have to be biased. We can't absorb information uh, as data. It's, we, our brains would fry. And so we have to differentiate between like this mug of coffee, that laptop, your face behind this backdrop. And then our brain can only focus on one thing at a time, given the context of mm-hmm. what we're doing. And so inherently, we draw these weird uh, stereotypes, these uh, roles. And what I don't like about the modern term of toxic masculinity is it is itself kind of biased. There's a toxic femininity. There's a toxic, even a toxic uh, a manner of which a person is supposed to be gay, a manner of which a person right. is supposed yeah, to be yeah. Asian, a manner of which, you know, so it's, it's just so marred. But if we bring it back to even more ambiguous, the fact that there's a supposed to at all is what brings all of this into violence, I think, this expectation. And um, I'm seeing at least with my son and, and his peers and this generation that's coming next, that's softening a lot. He mm-hmm. still gets looked at called a girl because he has a pink bike, which is kind of annoying. But he also has a lot of friends that don't give a shit already at grade six or parents that don't even blink an eye. Um, so they're, like we were talking a little bit earlier, it's softening. But this movie really brings up in the 90s that there are hard and fast rules, suicide rate in men's three to one for women. Like, uh, there's so much pressure that you have to take a shape, form, and size, speak a certain way, be alpha, and all that kind of bullshit. I think it exists in all cultures, in all genders, all sexualities. And I think this movie in particular addresses that across the board. Because even, I can't remember the character's name, but uh, Chloe Sveni's uh, character has to fight that too. It's not just small town life. Like, what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a daughter? What does it mean to be a girlfriend of this when she discovers the secret and she's, and, and again, we'll, we can talk if we want about whether this character is correctly portrayed in the literal experience of this right. woman, whatever. But to your point, the director really wants to stress that it's not just Peter Sarsgaard's character who's a fucking maniac. There isn't a single likable person in this movie. Like maybe well, uh, yeah. the cousin, I mean, he's at least sweet, the gay cousin, I can't remember his name, living in the trailer. I think he might be the sort of moral cornerstone he he seems the most balanced of the entire cast. He is the one person who's like, you need to go somewhere else. Yeah. Like, you can't stay here. Because he, I think he foresees like this is going to end poorly. But also um, supportive. And he keeps letting her, uh, him come back and, and shielding and, and supporting him despite having his trailer broken into and fucking people like trying to yeah. destroy his life. I have a point of view on this. But do you think that there is for lack of a better term, a method to the madness of why the director and screenwriter decided to focus so brutally on the violence of this situation. Because the situation is about the violence. I'm, I'm phoenixing right. you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, reading a little bit about the true events, it, like we, I mean, it's shocking how literal this movie takes those true events and how it depicts it to the point in which Hollywood allow it to be shown. <laughs> Uh, right. And you can tell there's almost an intent to go farther. I mean, the fact they pushed it that far in 99, like I was, I was in a ball, like at the, the rape scene is, I wasn't even expecting yeah, it. 
It's awful. Holy um, shit. And then the murder too, like the way that built up and they give you those glimpses, like maybe they get away. Maybe it's going to be fine. And then there's a part of you that's like, no, there's no way this is going to end well yeah. for anybody involved in this. Well, that specifically is so brutal because the it's- kids, man. Well, I mean, the, the death scene specifically is almost so nonchalant from the perpetrator that that in itself makes it hurt more because it's like, whatever, boom, it's done. It's like, well, that they're not coming back from that. Like, this is, it's over. But even, like, Brandon, in a way, is shown to be a little bit of, like, oh, like a huckster and, like, you know, stealing things, et cetera, et cetera. My, my theory on this is that we're really being forced as an audience to go through something un uncomfortable and some uncomfortable truths, which is like, okay, so let's start in a place where our main character is stealing things, uh, being arrested. I want to refrain from saying lying specific because I don't want to be like a lot of trans people bristle because they're portrayed as liars all the time, <laughs> just based on the fact that they're transitioning. But you know, not portrayed in the best of light, right? But then we get further and further into the movie. And I think what it's trying to do is be like, okay, yes, we started here, but do they deserve this? And I, and I don't think that most audience members are going to be like, absolutely. Like they totally deserve to be raped and then brutally murdered. Well, hopefully not. Although, right. you know, of course there are fucking crazy people, whether right. they actually I mean, believe it or not, that are going to say that out loud. I think a better way to restrict it, I, I would still use lying and conning not about the gender but one of the things that right. struck me about brandon is uh this tension that there's a sadomasochist there's and this is why i don't i don't know if this is part of her as an individual or if there's some aspect of fulfilling again a gender role of what it means to be a dude i don't i don't know but like to chase after women to get beat up and go back get beat up and go back and well get, yeah i mean that is wrapped up in it like this crazy. is what a man does right this is what a, it was this is what a small town man does he likes to go and get drunk get beat up at bars and chase women and i'm just like any one of them that's the thing that i couldn't even at the beginning yeah my, my first cringe was like you know that first event where he gets dropped off at the at the bar and you're like okay you know testing it out living on the edge they come back they try to beat him up i can't remember what the time span is and then it's right back. And you're like, you know, what is it? What is it about this? That's It's one thing for me to think I'm going to live out my identity as I feel spiritually or emotionally or personally. It's another thing to go and find violence because the whole thing is just soaked in violence. His whole life is violent, right? And, uh, and that's the part where it's fascinating that I kept on this ride. It's one of those yeah. weird things with uh, indie flicks, I don't know, where you can get a protagonist that isn't actually that likable, but the actor has to portray with some charisma that you can still fight through so much angst and agony and then end in the worst way possible. Right. Uh, sure. And then still walk away and have an intellectual, pseudo-intellectual discussion about how it impacts our lives. Fucking incredible. Uh, there's two last things I want to go through. One, I want to talk about just the filmmaking aspect of this specifically i unfortunately do not think i have seen another kimberly pierce film so i cannot really compare her filmography with one another but i think what she was able to do with such little money uh the only other female director i think that we've talked about this season was ravenous and she was brought in like last minute and had to figure out how to make a movie 
for the studio that it was already underway shooting. This one was like conceived by, pitched by, for. Uh, directed by, like really in that creative process. Again, I think that she kind of knocked it out of the park as far as the filmmaking aspect of it goes. Yeah, without having experience of living in the trope of a dead end town in the in Midwestern states or whatever, everything from the tone, the colors, the the sort of sparseness, like the uh, young woman, unfortunate murder victim with the child. I mean, how many questions are left intentionally oh ambiguous there about? That whole living arrangement, you know, in this, I, it looks like an abandoned house. There's a, there's a kid running around. I, I mean, that whole thing is fascinating and it gives this uh, great horror movie-esque feel. There's uh, emptiness. Yeah. So much emptiness in this movie. Uh, but, uh, you know, we have been focusing so much on the negative. I, just a quick sort of rebuttal, which is, I think the other thing that floats this movie is there are, there are great moments of sweetness in it too. I mean, the... The relationship is genuine, no matter how fucked up the characters actually are and where it, it, it's sure. couched in. But Chloe Sevigny and Hil- Hilary Swank are so great at communicating that this relationship, no matter how it starts and what under what weird pretense, really develops a, a strong bond between them. And you are rooting, like I found myself rooting for them I without, because I did not know the story and where this was going to go. I really thought that there was a chance in a Hollywood-esque way that they might squeak out somehow. Yeah. Yeah. If not both, at least one. And I guess you can make the argument that that's true, but uh, fuck man, this is- uh, Well, that's that's kind of the last thing I wanted to end on, which is some of like the controversy in present day about this movie. Um, And some of this was, again, at the time it was released, but I think we do need to speak to the fact this is, again, based on a true story, which uh, I've spoken before about my dislike of when they- do that at the beginning of movies like based on a true story which this one does not do if i remember correctly uh but here this is straight from the wikipedia article which is the accuracy of boys don't cry was disputed by real life people involved in the murder the real lena tisdale who was uh, chloe sevigny declared her dislike for the film she said brandon never proposed to her when she discovered brandon was transgender she ended the relationship Tisdale disliked the way she was portrayed in the film and called the film the second murder of Brandon Tina. Lana Tisdale's potential involvement in the rape and murder of Brandon Tina was also highlighted. Various people involved in the case, particularly Brandon's family, have alleged that have alleged that Tisdale was somehow involved with the murders or had at least set them up in an act of vengeance. Perhaps the most notable admission about Tisdale's motives came from Tom Nissen, who infamously confessed that Tisdale was present at the time of the murders in the car and had even tried knocking on the door of the farmhouse where Brandon, Lambert, and Divine were staying. By the way, yes, there's an entire character, uh, a black man, who is very integral in the real-life story that is completely cut from this film that they don't even bother trying to include in the story, which would bring in an element of race to, to I think, this story that is uh, would be interesting. I don't know. The writer of me is like, well, yeah, they kind of have to change a little bit of stuff for Hollywood. That does seem like a pretty huge change if she was involved in the murders and 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 said in the uh in the movie version she's portrayed as being super loving the entire time i don't know i mean i guess again we get into this uh thin line between documentary and biopics and i think that you know so for example the idea of alleging that somebody is involved with something that they are not convicted of is and conspiracy theories it's not that I wouldn't believe it. It's just when you're building a film, a, a, like a small section of a story, 
that creates a different type of movie. Then you're getting into a whodunit or like a, a mystery film. And that's not what this film's project is about. This film's project is about highlighting transphobia, highlighting violence, highlighting maybe toxic masculinity, gender, right? Who knows? Like just a litany of fucking hate that the idea of a smoking gun is like totally irrelevant. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting, it's just the cynical part of my mind is, what is it that this other woman is so upset about? If her character in a movie is portrayed as romantic, ambivalent, a kind of a good guy, like what are you angry about? And there's a lot yeah, of- what weird, are you pushing back? Yeah, there's a lot of yeah. weird tension there about maybe just wanting to be in the press, which is so unfair because I don't know her either. But hearing uh, the quotes that you're reading, I'm, I'm just, I mean, this is my classic dislike of sort of American culture in general. Like, why do you even need to be in the limelight? The story's been told. You're trying to say that you weren't a nice person about it. They told this guy to fuck off because you found out that it what he wasn't a man yet. Like, is that- I'm not going to let this stand. I was a complete asshole, okay? Yeah. Is that the high ground here? Like, it's weird, right? I believe in the truth. I don't know. You're a party to, in some sense, one of the most brutal- rapes and murders of a trans uh, person, particularly at least in that era. Who knows how much worse it can be when you start peeling away the layers at this world. This is from a New York Times article called Boys Don't Cry 20 Years Later for Trans Men at the Visive Legacy, written by Trish Bendix. This was published October 9th of 2019, so basically one year ago. I'm just going to read a small section here from it, which is, there are other reasons the mainstream success of Boys Don't Cry was as validating as it was frustrating for trans viewers. Some, depending on where they were in their journey, found it crucial to their learning that trans men existed. Others recoiled from the dehumanizing brutality Tina endured. It's incredibly hard to see, even if it's a dramatization, to know that was what his final moments were, said the trans actor Leo Sheng. While transgender women have seen more positive portrayals in recent years, trans men have yet to see the same. I can emphasize with young trans men who don't want to see it, Kate Bornstein, a transgender activist and author who attended the murder trial with Pierce, said, explaining, you're seeing a movie about yourself and then yourself is murdered. Why would you go and see that? Why? Pierce argued that Boys Don't Cry helped the culture become more responsible. If cisgender straight American audiences can empathize with Tina, then maybe boys could create change. Aren't they glad it exists? Pierce asked, then added, I feel bad that the experience is painful. And at the same time, I still think it's important that we have a super committed queer director trying to help the story authentically. You know what stands out to me just from a journalistic quote unquote thing, which I fucking hate, is the use of the word argues. There wasn't even an argument there, man. Like they were just talking about the role that this film might play. And I, you know, it's a sound argument. I, if someone mm-hmm. gave me a, a DVD about, uh, you know, a, a Canadian-born Korean man who's uh, executed for not being white, I'm not going to press play on it, right? <laughs> right, uh, right. Or yeah. if I uh, am either coerced or accidentally or intentionally watch it, I'm going to be deeply affected by it. The individual may become an activist, may recoil, but that's not up to the artist. That's not... The responsibility of a director to shape social res- response, right? And I think it, it is totally in their right. Uh, again, to uh, peel the the curtain back here a little bit, one of the people we did get to knock on our floating door, who said they would come and talk to us about this, uh, got thirty minutes in and was like, "No, I don't want to finish this." And I was like, 
that's totally cool because you probably don't want to finish this. It's pretty brutal. Yeah. Uh, past the 30 minutes. Yeah. I mean, I in the first 30 minutes, I was like, yep, I get it. And then 30 minutes later, I'm like, holy shit, it gets worse. And then 30 minutes later, I'm like, nope, do not. <laughs> no, do not. Do not go here unless unless you need mm-hmm. to. And that's a weird yeah. thing about any form of media. And I, I don't know. I don't think there's a good, there's no singular answer, which is, I think, the problem with phobias in general is that we think that there's supposed to be one right answer. If I go to an art exhibit and it's like 50 phalluses or, or paintings of grisly murders, or, and there's tons of classic art with that where yeah. it's just blood and swords and fucking weird shit. I mean, Rodin is one of my favorite sculptors and his shit is fucked up. 50 phalluses is the name of the band I just joined. You know, right. I, should yeah, yeah. I be afraid of that or should that speak to me? And tell me about what his uh, conceptions of hell and, and the twisted bodies of humanity. I, I don't know. There's going to be a lot of people who, who hate it and would think that I'm a psychopath for enjoying that stuff. I, I don't know. Yeah. Talk to the guy who likes Caravaggio's paintings. Like, <laughs> and he was probably in the height of like bipolar madness when he painted most of those. So I, I think you're right. I, I don't remember if it was this article or not that I read, but there was a recent screen of Boys Don't Cry, I think last summer where there was uh, many transgender activists who came and picketed and was like, hey, like we don't support this film anymore. And so I think that's completely valid to have. But I guess to kind of add on to the point that has been made here a few times about like the correct way to be transgender or the correct way to be gay, the correct way to be Asian. I think that that is a defining thing in our times right now where people are biting up against this of like, where does this fall with me? And what is this? How am I reacting to this as an individual, but also how am I reacting to this based on various levels of identity that I have? I often get into this because as a bisexual man, I even more so feel like the push-pull of different types of cultures around me. And I take a look at, say, specifically gay culture, and it's like the idea there is like it's flamboyant and loves like RuPaul's drag race and like, you know, have have these catchphrases. And that's never been a thing that I have enjoyed doing. More power to you if you want to. That's cool. I'm not saying don't do it, but that's that's not who I am. And so you get into these questions like, well, you're not acting gay enough or you're not doing this. It's like, well, I'm not saying don't. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying it's not for me. I don't want to do it. So I wonder if that's what the conversation is that we're really circling the drain here on, which is there. I think we're trying to maybe cram this into a box that fits us rather than uh, looking at the movie as it is, as it's presented. I mean, this is the problem that is evidenced, for example, in the, uh, I mean, there are five, but three warring uh, religions, you know, this idea that you can put you know, Christianity and Catholicism in one box and it encompasses however many billion people. It's madness. Like, wh- why the fuck do we have cultures that believe in that? That if I believe that there's this person, Jesus Christ, that means I connect with you because you, no, we fucking hate each other. But then this other person <laughs> thinks that, oh, Jesus was just another prophet. Well, fuck that person. Or this other person's like, well, that person, we got Muhammad. It's like, And they, they kill each other. Human beings are reprehensible if you're if left to their own devices. I, I keep thinking about a Pierre Trudeau of all fucking people in that one quote, I, I don't know how it goes, but you know, I mean, yes, often compared to Jesus, actually. Uh, well, actually, in Canada, maybe, but um, <laughs> you know, what is it? The government has no business in the bedroom of its people or whatever, you know, right, like, right, yeah, yeah. leave people alone, like, whatever your beliefs are. And this is the problem with the evangelical fucking uh, anything. Like, if I believe something, I shouldn't have to choke you, Kyle, out for you to agree with me. And that's, I think, the best that should be the synopsis of this movie 
is that, you know, like this conversion fucking camp stuff, you can't, you can't uh, harm people into turning into you. That's just not how personalities and human nature work. It's what we seem to believe as a fucking animal species. It's disgusting, but it's not my right to tell people that they're wrong about what they believe in. And you know, as I get older, like Hilary Swank, maybe in her car, you get to start listening more if you keep your mouth shut. Like there's a phrase, right? Like you can't hear anything, if, you know, can't shut your mouth. So mm-hmm. the louder marches yell, uh, the less they're willing to hear and the less conversation you have, that's not good either. You can't just protest for the sake of protesting. Um, you need dialogue. Movies like this, I mean, I don't want to put this movie on such a high pedestal. This is not like the greatest civil activist type of movie right. uh, ever made. But movies of this genre are important. For us, you know, for example, to spend much longer than I thought we would recording a conversation about something we both don't understand anything about. But, uh, but this conversation gets to happen, whether you like the movie or not. I think that's important. Uh, that, was, that used to be the power of film and photographs and media and stories. It's twisted a lot because now it's just trying to sell you Starbucks. You know what's crazy? And that shows my age that I use Starbucks as the man and they're not anymore. But <laughs> I think that's how I, we uh, can kind of wrap this up with, which is it is that listening piece. As much as I did not enjoy the actual watching of this film, <laughs> yeah. what I appreciated about it is that, hey... Like this is a an experience and I'm in ways glad that I did go through this experience because boy, it's hard not to empathize with somebody's journey when you actually see it laid bare. Like this is the struggle that this person went through. And when someone else comes up and is like, hey, I had a similar experience, it's like, poof, okay. Like I kind of get it. There's that shorthand that you have there. Do I hope that there's better representation in future films? Yes, 100%. The, the march of progress is slow, but it like kind of evolves over time. Uh, and I'm glad that Hollywood is trying to be a, a, as much as a progressive as they possibly can with this, although even they misstep most of the time. But still, there is that push to see more representation of, of trans actors and actresses and their stories being told by those people, much more so than was ever allowed to in the past. You know, I think my concluding statement would be from a trauma perspective, I think that if you are not a trans person, this almost ought to be required viewing. Right. I think that, not that I would ever tell someone to sit down and just make, you know, like clockwork orange them to watch this movie, but movies of this nature, like, yeah, Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream for addiction and fucking whatever, like wherever you are in your scale of personal opinions, challenging yourself to understand what other people, even individuals go through is the only way we get this discourse I'm talking about. What I did in the 90s and running away from it didn't help me. It really, mm-hmm. I mean, didn't. I don't know if it destroyed my ability to make friends with anybody, but I'm glad I watched it, even though I will never watch this again. We're done here. Thankfully, the machine has told us that we need to wrap up. So that means, Dave, that we need to move on to rating this movie somehow which I think is almost a near impossible task. So people can take a look at our ratings and our entire list of films that we've watched this season by going to our Letterboxd page. There is a link in the description to this uh, podcast, but letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And KDVSTM is also where you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, posting interesting content over on those two platforms. If you want to Contact us and tell us how stupid we are. You can do that too, which is Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. 
And we've already mentioned that you can help us out on Patreon. All of this helps. By the way, if you want to help us completely free for $0 down and no successive payments, you can go to wherever you're listening to this podcast and rate us, whether that's on the Apple Store or the dozens of other platforms that are out there. It's literally free. We'll take you five seconds to go and give us five stars because that's obviously what we we deserve. Clearly. Uh, and that helps us out in discovery a whole lot. So uh, talking about five stars, Dave, what do you think you would rate this movie out of five? I don't know. I kind of want to defer to you. I, number one, because I'm, I'm pretty sure I've rated all these movies first because you're uh, okay. the mastermind. So but- let's, let's break tradition. We'll break with tradition here then. <laughs> I found this an impossible thing to rate. Yeah. As I said, I respect a lot of the artistry in it. Yet there is nothing about this film that makes me want to revisit it. And it's a different type of not wanting to revisit it than a Schindler's List. And that's just a personal thing. Like I could foresee myself not wanting to watch Schindler's List, but still being convinced to rewatch it. This one, boy, like unless there was a chance for like cash money at the end of it, I really just don't want to go through this experience again. It was too rough the first time. And so that's where I settled kind of like right in the very middle so I gave it 2.5 because that's literally, I don't know how else oh, wow. to rate this movie. That makes it sound like I hate it and I don't. I, I do think that a rating should provide a little bit of context as far as like how much and how rewatchable I think a movie is. And this is the ambiguous part, which is number one, that we haven't defined it from the beginning of this year's of work, which makes this even harder for us because... yeah. Because we're kind of making it up as we go. And I, I will, I mean, I have to back check this, but I'm pretty sure I brought up that maybe we should have had a formal structured rating system where, you know, I don't remember that. You know, I don't recall cinematography, that. Cinematography, rewatchability, plot. The thing about this movie. It's an 11 point scale. Okay. That we no, <laughs> And then you, ra- you know, it's like, uh, what was I just watching? World of dance. You know, there's like 17 categories and you get an amalgamated average. It's called averages. There's math. All right, mm-hmm. Kyle, ma- mathematics. If we were in Britain, though, they'd call it maths. Maths. The social impact, I think the requirement of movies to exist like this makes me think it needs to be higher. But to your point, the idea, for example, of what a five out of five movie is, uh, and we've argued, and argued, yeah, here, here's that word again, but we've argued mm-hmm. about, especially when we're very close, but what that means. My thought is to go higher and sure. do like a four- and restrict it from being a five just because it is so violent. I don't necessarily want it to show that I think, well, I mean, I do think almost everybody should watch this movie. <laughs> now that I've seen it, I've been running away from it for however, what, 20, 21 years? I'll give it a four. Okay. Yeah. Well, that means that it averages to 3.25. We always round down, so that'll be a three on Letterboxd. But that means it's tied with two other films that could not be more different. <laughs> Fucking 99, so, man. All right. <clears throat> Hit me. So it's tying with Drop Dead Gorgeous and Election. You know, it's funny how they're different, but the same. All trying to be intellectual indie films with some type mm-hmm. of political agenda uh, or social agenda. And uh, only one of them is actually uh, not trying to be funny. It's a better structure movie, shot better, it's more effective, it actually gets its point across. It has to be better than Election Drop Dead Gorgeous. You know, I have a bias too, because I didn't like Election that much. And uh, You didn't, no. Uh, this, is, this is the hard one, because I li- both liked Drop Dead Gorgeous and Election much more uh, than you did. This is what I think we should do. 
let's put it right in the middle of those two. <laughs> Just because we split so much on this one, specifically on how we should rate it. So it'll go above election, but below Drop Dead Gorgeous. All right. Which is just such a weird list. Okay, so entering our list at the number 19 position is Boys Don't Cry. I think at the end, end of this project, we'll have to do a sit-down revisionist episode with the context. But only on Patreon. That is only for Patreon members. Let's find out what we're watching next week, Dave. Uh, oh, well, I, going from Boys Not Crying to boys crying all the time we're watching fight club next week oh nice i mean what a what a change of pace and yet exactly the same oh boy that's gonna be an, another conversation that we're gonna probably have to tread lightly with i have nothing more to say I- <laughs> well we survived here dave um again we have to if you just want to be very very careful walking on that thin fine line no, i thought you're gonna on say the, a red on a thin on a thin blue line <laughs> of that fine line <laughs> uh no i've already tipped over i uh yeah i mean if yeah. we want to talk uh, about s- sobriety i've never been good at these straight line walking challenges yeah <laughs> i think that means you're canceled yeah are we gonna get canceled hey machine what's your yeah, uh, hey yeah. <laughs> machine is that possible can we be canceled contractual you need to do at least six seasons well you know maybe this is the best way to avoid apocalypse we just do another episode uh about this movie kyle and just push the envelope man <laughs> yeah we we find out that nbc did not pick us up for our next season <laughs>